0: Hi, my name is Visha Cadell and I'm bringing you Behind the Face of Success, a podcast that delves into the untold stories of people that have reached great heights in their careers and the decisions whether good or bad they took to get there. Journalism is an incredibly specialized skill to possess. Journalists are not only truth tellers, but they're also storytellers. But in today's world, it's becoming an even tougher business to be in, especially as new tech platforms emerge and audiences become so much more fragmented in their approaches to where they get their news. So for this episode, I wanted to bring someone that really knows her stuff when it comes to growing her career from an award-winning journalist to an author. My guest today is Puna Bell. But let me start by telling you a little bit more about her. Puna is an award-winning journalist, a charismatic, motivational speaker, published author, and influencer. She works extensively across several areas, including women's journalism, women in business, fitness and strength, body image, wellness, mental health, and is an advocate for diversity inclusion. She was the former UK executive editor and global lifestyle head for HuffPost, and now works as a freelance journalist and editor for titles including The Guardian, Red Magazine, Stylist, Grazia, Women's Health and The Daily Telegraph. She's become a popular public speaker and event facilitator. has also received Stylist Magazine's Rising Star Award at the inaugural Remarkable Women's Award in 2019. She's also written a few books too, which I'll link into the bio of this podcast, She's a positive influence on body positivity, mental health, and using her social platform for good. All the stuff we need to be seeing on our feeds. Now, I always love having a conversation with Buna, or just seeing her speak on stage, really. Not only because her career history today has been pretty outstanding, but mostly because we always have an honest and authentic conversation together, which says so much about her character. So, hello Pinna it's so lovely to see you. I follow you on Instagram a lot. We have met several times, but I'm actually really excited to have a conversation with you today. So, how are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm good at the moment. I am just finishing off my second book, and I think the last, my fiction book, and the last time I think I saw you was actually at my book launch, for my first fiction so that I think is the last time we saw each other. Oh
0: yeah, I'm excited to hear more about the next book, and I'm hoping I might get an invite to the book launch. That's me.
1: Right, I have to figure out whether or not I want to throw one because the last one was very fun, but I needed a very long lie down after afterwards. Yeah, it
0: was so nice bringing everyone together. But let's start off with a little bit more about you, because we you know. in terms of like how you are in terms of your career but actually I'd love to start off by knowing you as the person that you know your childhood and how you grew up and your environment really.
1: Yeah so I would sort of say I'm British Indian which is what my background is but how I grew up is sort of different to a lot of other let's say British Asians that I know who I went to university with for example. So I uh, was born and brought up in England. But when I was seven, my parents decided that they wanted us all to move back to India and that they didn't really want us to be raised as English kids, that they wanted us to be Indian kids, basically. And we spent about five years out there and sort of the culmination of which was that my dad, who is now a retired doctor, basically just realised that he just couldn't really work out there. And um, there were certain things that he kind of needed in terms of the environment that he wanted to work in. And we then made the decision to all come back literally a couple of months before I started secondary school here. So that experience of sort of having, for example, like I have friends who will say that they come from two cultures, But I definitely feel like living out there and growing up with, you know, my cousins who would consider themselves to be 100% Indian was very, very formative in terms of shaping, I think, uh, both myself and my older sister. Like how we think, how we approach things, uh, certain parts of our work ethic and in terms of also gratitude and appreciation, I think, for, for certain things and also just in terms of our culture, that feeling more organic rather than experience our, experiencing our culture in a country that isn't necessarily where our parents came from.
0: That is so interesting because I'm born and bred, Indian born and bred in London. But when I go to India, I feel like a tourist there. I'm like, I don't really, I know mom comes from here, but do you feel like when you're in India, you're like, wow, well, you know, I, I, I get it, I get the culture here. But do you now still feel being in London for such a long time, being in the UK for so long, does it make a difference when you
1: go between both countries? I mean, I don't feel like I really belong fully in either place. And I think that that used to be the source of extreme angst when I was younger, because even though, you know, I would say when we were growing up there, we still had the sense that our beginning had been very different to our cousins who had who had only ever lived there. And so there is a sense that you're not entirely Indian, but when we moved to the UK, you know, and it's not just about, for example, growing up in a predominantly white area. For example, when I went to university, my university was very heavily populated by South Asians, which it wasn't a thing that I chose on purpose. It just happened to be the university that I went to, but it was clear that I didn't fit in with them either because a lot of the um, South Asians, particularly like Indians, who settle in Britain tend to be like predominantly from Gujarat or Punjab, and I'm not from there. I'm from the state of Karnataka, which is in the south. We have a a few differences in terms of, you know, um, not just religion perhaps, or how we practice our religion, but also food and so on and and music. And so it was like, because I didn't like Bungra, for example, I was not considered to be, you know, Asian. And also Asian is a word that is used to describe a collection of people from different countries versus being specifically Indian. So I would say when I go over there, I know that I am not, I, I'm not treated as, and I'm not sort of accepted as someone who is fully Indian, but... I also feel like when I'm there, there's a part of me that feels that that is home and that feels that that is comfortable in a way that I just don't feel in the UK. And conversely, there are things about me that are very quintessentially British, which I definitely know don't come from, you know, the Indian part of me. But I've just learned to be comfortable sitting across both things rather than agonising about looking at like where the parts of where I don't belong, if that makes sense. Especially I think nowadays with social media compared to, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s, you can tap into communities and of people that will feel the same way that you do, that have different patchwork sense of identities in a way that you wouldn't be able to in 1990s Kent. Do you know what I mean? So it's a lot easier now, I think.
0: I just love the way you sort of ended it with comfort, it doesn't matter where you're from, but it's like what you're comfortable with and what you're going to attract back on you, which is so important. I'm more curious to know a little bit more about like, as you were a child growing up, being in those different environments, also your dad's the doctor, did you want to go
1: into a similar field to him? Who did you want to be before you became the woman you are today? I mean, <laughs> <All sorts. laughs> there was no chance of me ever going into a career that involved using science or maths. Um, I just was always not great at it and I was always um, so I had like a very clear split like I was very good at English when I was a kid like even when I was about you know six or seven and it wasn't that I was terrible for example at things like maths and science I just was very average at it and also most importantly I didn't enjoy it so on my weekends I wasn't sort of spending time like doing maths equations I was writing stories because that's what I found enjoyable to do And so really, there wasn't really any question of of the, not necessarily the profession, because I I wouldn't say that I knew what I wanted to be beyond the fact that I wanted to be a writer. But it was very clear to me what line of work I was going to be going in, in terms of like what skills I was going to utilise and my mum works uh worked rather as a civil servant and she's very good at maths um, so i'm not sure i'm not sure entirely but my dad's a doctor but he still i would say is a creative person like he used to write poetry uh when he was kind of younger and and so you never really know you know the parts of your parents that you inherit to a certain degree but it was always going to be the case that i was going to do something that required um writing or creativity and my parents were never ever the type of people to say you have to go into this particular line of work or you need a job that's safe which i don't think i appreciated until i went into university and again like mixed with a lot of like south asian people from different backgrounds and a very close friend of mine at the time i remember was doing a biochemistry degree and she had actually got a place at the london college of fashion but her parents wouldn't allow her to go because they just said you know that's not what we do as a career and I still think about her and I still think about that and I think of how different her life might be had she been allowed to actually just you know pursue the thing that she was naturally talented at versus the thing she probably doesn't even use her biochemistry degree now you know
0: no and you know it's so interesting here you say that because I work in media my sister works as a banker and so whenever we used to go back let's say we used to go back to India or somewhere else she'd be like oh Aaron's a banker she does this and should never say what I did <laughs> because I don't think she got it. And that's really interesting about how some of those roles are really idealized because people know them, that generation know them really well, but they don't know about, let's say, journalism. You've started off as a journalist. So it becomes, I'm sure your parents knew about it, but there are multiple different parents that don't know about it and don't encourage their kids to take those avenues. So I'd love to know a little bit more about how you got into journalism, obviously clear connection with writing and storytelling, but what steps did you take?
1: I think at sort of degree level, I was deciding what to do and I was deciding whether or not to do an English literature degree or, for example, like a media, a mixed media journalism degree with it. And no uh, disrespect to anyone that has done a journalism degree, by the way, but I just remember this is just how how this happened to me someone told me that the problem sometimes with journalism degrees is that they're taught by people who aren't necessarily at the pinnacle of their game in terms of journalism so they can teach you maybe the the bare bones of it but in terms of like if you are going there to be taught by a top level journalist that might not be the places that you kind of get into and also because reading and um, literature and that part of academia really appealed to me. I just knew that if I didn't study it at degree level, I was never going to really, you know, have access to that. So that is something I'm very, very glad I did because that taught me so many more skills than I think it would have done had I done a journalism degree. And also I wasn't sure whether it was journalism or broadcast that I wanted to go into. And then when I graduated, going into broadcast, I mean, it's, it's a bit better now because, you know, we've got better in terms of diversity to a certain extent. I still don't think it's that great, but it's okay. But back then it was next to impossible. And so trying to get any sort of opportunity, any kind of work experience, I just, I just couldn't like break through to it. And yeah. then I remember sort of in the early months of of having graduated and working some you know horrendous like telesales job which i was so bad at a friend of a, f- a friend's cousin said look i've started working at this you know asian um newspaper would you like to come in for work experience and this was the only person that offered me that opportunity you know um and i applied to so many different places for journalism as well and just couldn't get through and so I started work experience there and then just made myself as indispensable as possible. That then segued into a staff job, which was so badly paid, it just didn't it didn't even cover two-thirds of my bills. And then from there, I just sort of worked my way up and I stayed within that kind of bubble of Asian media for about four years, three, three four years, and then decided that I had to leave. Because if I didn't leave... It was going to then be very difficult to break into the mainstream you know, media. But again, uh, the person who advocated for me, because I then moved into News Corp. So I worked for, for the London paper, which is now obviously defunct. But the person who got me in, in there was the chief sub editor there, who was also South Asian. So those like early years were very much advocacy that were led by people from my own community I don't really know that I would have been able to get as far as I did without that initial help from them.
0: Wow that's incredible to actually hear about how people can be so kind and offer help when you really really need it I think that's so important and now what I love about you is that you're a role model for other people that want to follow in your footsteps but also opening this opportunity up for people in journalism to see that there are there should be people of colour in in these in these departments so you know god I just feel quite inspired by that story that you just told but now as a author how do you feel like you know that transition happened for you going from journalism to now being an author
1: I mean, it's been a slow, long transition. I would say that when I was a journalist, I don't think it really occurred to me that I could be an author, to be honest. I did dabble a little with writing fiction manuscripts in my 20s, but they were really bad. I mean, they were, they were awful manuscripts that I sort of sent out. And, you know, people were kind... Some weren't so kind, but people were mostly kind about it and just said, you know, this just needs a bit more development or whatever. But I just assumed, oh, okay, I'm just not going to make it as an author. You know, maybe I just don't have what it takes. And then I think in my 30s, I think it's quite telling that the first book that I published was actually nonfiction. It wasn't fiction. I don't think personally I would have been able to go from journalism directly into fiction. It It would have just been too much of a leap. And the reason why I say nonfiction is because essentially, even though, you know, you may be putting your own experience in there, which I did do, you are generally following like a structure that is not so dissimilar to journalism in terms of providing statistics, research, interviewing people about things, you know, just giving something that's a bit more robust than your lived in experience, right? And so that was was something that was very familiar to me. But also, I kind of get asked about the transition of it a lot. And I just said, you know, because I think people have this um, this really romantic idea of book writing, which is that, you know, you sit in a cabin and then the muse strikes you and then, oh, look, I've written like 5,000 words. It's not like that at all. You know, it it really isn't. And I know this because in my 20s, I did go, I t- took like a mini sabbatical with the express intent of being able to like come back with my novel. And I literally wrote like 400 words because I was too busy living life. And also, that's just not how I write. I don't write like while I'm sitting on a beach in Bali. Do you know what I mean? I write, I write like literally in the most cocooned space with quiet where I can control everything and I have access to a kettle. Like literally that, that is it. So I think that to be able to write a book, That if you don't have discipline, you are not going, just nothing is going to get done. So it's about things like deadlines. It's about discipline. Yes, it's absolutely about creativity, but it's also about knowing when to rein that in and when, when to rein your ego in and when to let go of things. And especially, for example, when you're being edited, as a journalist, that is something you literally learn from like day dot. Like you can't get that precious about it because if someone is helping you to edit your book, almost always It's to produce something better, and the the authors that I know, like these are like best selling authors, right? Who have hit like stratospheric like levels of success. When some of them go a bit bonkers and they basically don't allow their editors to edit their books anymore, it's terrible. Like it is terrible, terrible work. And so being able to be humble enough to allow someone to edit your work as well, I think was a was a big thing. But I definitely know these are all skills that journalism gave me. So it was less of a process, I think, in, in my case.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. Also, you're going to laugh at this, because I do think that whole thing about writing in a cabin is an idealised thing that movies have been pushing for ages, because <laughs> I have this at the moment. I was like oh my God, I'm just going to sit in a pub in a sunny afternoon and write something. And then I was looking this up and I read that a literary agent has said, I get 90 manuscripts a day and not all of them make it through. And I just thought, oh my God, it is a hard, tough business to be in. So I think the fact that you've actually gone through some, some feelings of rejection and it's amazing that you just pursued with it. And I, I mean, that, that takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of gut to be able to do that. So I'm, I'm just blown away that you can, because it does, it can bring you down.
1: Yeah. I mean, also, I would say that publishing the book is not the goal. It's one of the goals that's part of like an ongoing body of work. So so I think I completely understand that before you've published anything, that that is the most overriding, overwhelming thing, right? Even being able to get an agent is such a huge milestone. To then be able to like get a publisher to take your manuscript on is such a huge endeavor. And it's not to to do any of those things down because I remember how hungry I was to be able to do that and just the fear that I just would never do that. And so it's very easy for me to say this now that I'm like kind of four books in, but I definitely can tell you that like, once the book comes out, there is a whole different set of variables of like, you know, will your book sell well? Like, will people care? Like, what will their reaction to it be? And to be perfectly honest, that has been the hardest thing, I think, in recent years, in terms of when you're talking about things like bravery, or, or, you know, so on, no one gets like medals in this business. But like, that has actually been the hardest thing to do. and, And it has made me have newfound respect for other authors who have put themselves out there where I didn't really understand, you know, how much it takes out of you because it's a very, very vulnerable undertaking to be working on something for so long. Like you are literally working on this thing for like a minimum of a year, like not, and this isn't just writing, I'm talking about the whole process of editing it and so on and it all boils down to this like singular point when it comes out and and it might be an absolute failure and then you have to really live with that and deal with that really and and sort of understand that it's a very slow process and that even if something that you've produced or created didn't do particularly well that's not that's not the sign to like give up on it that you can kind of keep coming back and keep trying but it's that kind of magic of you know it's not even a magic really it's more just the resilience that you need to have to just get back up even after something didn't work out the way that you thought it would that i don't think i really understood or was prepared for but it is a lot
0: i'm really happy to hear that you were so open and honest about speaking about that because as i said mentioned to you but earlier on I had been to some schools to talk to them about, like, what do you want to hear? I've got a journalist, guys. I've got an author. And one girl, she's 15 years old from bio School in East London, did say, I want to become a journalist, but I'm so scared about, what if I write something and people reject it? And that insight that you shared, someone can, like, really understand that, you know, it's it happens to
1: everybody Yeah. And also, you know, so I'm trying to like think of how to frame this in a way that doesn't make me sound like really jaded and craggy. But like if you want to become a journalist, which is highly competitive industry, right, but it can also be a job that is just so rewarding, particularly, for example, if you do the kind of journalism where... You are either profiling let's say marginalized communities or you get to write about the issues that like really really matter to you and that that could really help people out if you manage to do it that way that kind of journalism can change how people think and so that is a very powerful thing I think to sort of take on if that's the industry you want to go into but it is definitely not for the faint of heart and so I think worrying about what other people think of your pieces I think There absolutely has been like a level of understanding around, for example, sensitivity and also just diversity in your newsrooms, which is why I still think journalism has a long way to go. I think that we still aren't approaching anywhere near the diversity it needs because I just don't understand how you can reflect to society if you're not, if you're the ones talking and reporting on it and you're not reflecting that in your own newsrooms and in the writers that you hire but the thing that it also teaches you is that everyone will have an opinion about what you do and maybe some of those opinions you'll agree with and some of those opinions you don't agree with and some of those opinions actually have got nothing to do with you they've got they've just triggered someone who's feeling a particular way around their life we have a rule in journalism that on an article you just never read the comments never read the comments and you'll be fine but also I think that you do need to develop a hard and a slightly thicker skin in terms of not everyone is going to love what you write. Your editor is not going to love what you write. And it's being open to understanding that when you are edited, when there is criticism or when there is feedback, all of that is going to feed into making you a better writer, really.
0: Yeah, I love that. Because you just made me think about a scenario that I've experienced. And I was um, one thing I like to say is filter the feedback. Because I think feedback is a gift 100% to help you get better. But also sometimes some of that feedback is somebody's opinion, or they've had a bad day, or they do not quite get it, you can get bad feedback, and then you can just stop. Or you can get feedback and you go like, Oh, God, I'm going to do better on this. I'm going to improve myself. Maybe I'm, and there's a level of self-awareness of being able to do that, I think, too. And talking about feedback and (laughs) hearing about bad feedback, I like to talk about learns and lessons and failures quite a lot. I think I even spoke to you about this when I was sort of experienced a bit of a transition in my life. And I'm always trying to work out, like, can I do better than that all the time? And I'd love to hear if there's, A fail that you've had, that you've learned from, that you've bounced back from?
1: I don't know so much about fail because I think that 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 seems to like happen all the time. I think if you try new things all the time and like, you know, you also come from a background of having worked for a tech company. You know, I have worked for media companies that have been owned by tech companies you are used to things changing so you're used to like the internal landscape even the internal structures of your company changing but you're also used to like the technology changing really quickly and you just kind of like have to adapt to it and absorb it you know as much as possible so something that may have worked like one year is not going to be the thing that works the the following year and i think definitely fine I, i've been a you know sole trader or freelancer for about 5 years but all like there have been a lot of failings because I try a lot of stuff and I think that you know the stuff that we were talking about previously which is about I don't want to use the word like courage because I feel like that's that's the wrong word to use but very often there for example there are people that will never publish their own books because they're so scared of the rejection that they don't want to try and I completely get that you know in my 20s I remember my mum helped to set up an interview with this woman who was really senior at the BBC. And I completely messed this woman around to the point that when I met her, I just don't think she really, she was doing it as a favor, but I don't think she really, you know, thought that I had much potential. And I don't blame her because I messed her around. And the reason why I messed her around was because I was just too scared of trying and I was too scared of what that might lead to and and what if I fail and so on. So I made myself fail anyway and I would say that nowadays the failures are like just slightly different. So, for example, let's say I came out with my first fiction book last year and I had like really, really high expectations of it. Like I wanted it to become a bestseller, this, that and the other. And it did fine, like it did fine, It, but it wasn't a bestseller. And after that, I just went into this complete spiral of Oh my God, I'm a failure. I should never write fiction again. This is too hard. Everyone hates it. And I also felt that like, I got really paranoid that people were thinking, especially my peers, that they were thinking a particular way about it, but no one was telling me the truth. And I literally drove myself mad for about three months with this, with this continuous negative spiral. And then at the end of it, I think what really helped actually was to read the accounts and to look at people who had had longer book or author careers than me, you know, to understand that like, it is actually extremely rare for a debut author to have a runaway success, you know, but unfortunately, if you use Instagram, you think that that's literally happening to everyone else but you. So it was very important to restore a sense of perspective. And to understand that I hadn't failed, what I had done was I had produced a work, a, a creative piece of work and so it follows that hopefully if i could take the learnings from that my second piece of work would be better and that's how that's how the trajectory of skill and learning and creativity is supposed to be it's supposed to be an, a slow upwards climb rather than you know a really steep kind of ascent into success and also when i then looked at the people that had like literally achieved enormous success with their first books That didn't come without its consequences. You know, for example, someone like Monica Ali, who wrote Brook Lane, she went into like a very deep period of depression because she just felt like nothing she would write after that would ever be as good, you know, and the pressure and the expectations that that puts on you. And I think that we do live in this culture and in this society where we expect that success to be instantaneous. You know, if you see someone on someone's journey on TikTok, that has been distilled into a 60 second video. And literally we're talking about like years and years of graft, but it's distilled into this like catchy little, you know, oh, my life was like, I was like a slug before. And now look at me, I'm a butterfly or whatever. And it's just like, there's no nuance in that. Like all you can see is, oh no, why did my life not turn out like that? Or maybe I should be able to access success that quickly. And I just don't think that that's what life is like. So for me, I think definitely processing that failure last year I mean I wish I hadn't taken three months of literally (laughs) looking at the walls of my apartment thinking oh my god I'm terrible but I did get there in the end and I think a big part of how I got there was definitely perspective absolutely talking to people and also adjusting my expectations I think but not like I'm not saying like lowering my expectations or being negative about myself it's just oh okay so maybe next time rather than thinking you're going to be like a Sunday Times bestseller, could it be that the book gets into certain places that you really admire and like? And so it's adjusting, I think, what that parameter of success looks like. Yeah. Uh, And also, you, you kind
0: of called out a couple of things that is the reason why I started this podcast in the first place, which is it's not easy. It's not going to take a day for you to become you. It takes a long time. It takes... lot of hard craft to kind of get there and that's probably because of the fact that you hear one part of the story not the full story which let's be honest we're in this kind of world where everyone's getting their news so quickly or like it is a six second video or a 15 second video on TikTok versus like sitting there and listening to a 45 minute podcast for example or seeing you speak or talk so I think it's, that happens quite easily. And I have found that when I went to a lot of female events and I'd hear a CEO speak and I was like, I am never. That's it. May as well pack it in. That's it. I would walk out with fear and not realise that that's going to happen for me because I thought, oh God, I'm already in my 30s. That's it. It's all over. So I really appreciate you, you saying that. And I also really love the fact that you kind of openly talk about it on your social media. You talk about a m- bunch of things that I really love. Actually, I love seeing your feed because and that's why I comment quite a lot. I hear you talk about this quite openly, and I think that's really important. How are you sort of like seeing this in terms of like, you know, we're in this kind of world where people are expecting perfection a little bit too much because of the nature of social media what do you
1: think about that? Do you mean perfection in terms of what they want from their own careers? or
0: Perfection in terms of, I suppose, all sorts of things. You've got body image is a good example of, you know, people want to be the skinniest there have ever been. Or we're talking about careers as well. It's like, oh, I need to be high flying or a CEO at the age of 20 without knowing anything. So there is this kind of like this version of perfection that exists on social media. And I worry a little bit more about the fact that we're kind of in this world where people feel like they need to be perfect and it plays on who they are. What do you think about that?
1: I mean, it's, I think it's tough because we do live in this like relentless hamster wheel, um, which If you just happen to like step on without really curating what you're looking at, it's so easy to just get sucked into it. I guess I'm trying to remember what it was like to be part of it where I didn't realize what was going on because I've just been, I feel like I'm just so out of that to a certain regard. For example, I am someone who curates my feeds quite strongly. And even though there are, for example, there's an influencer who I follow who has started posting like quite problematic content about what they eat and what their gym routine is. And I'm like, no one cares. And also if you're posting this without like any context, so the, the, the tone, for example, of the way that she's posting it is very much not like, hey, here's a sneak peek into my life. Like this was me training. The subtext is if you do this, you can look like me too. Right. And I guess like, when I probably first joined Instagram and I just had no awareness of what was going on, I would know when something made me felt, feel bad, but I wouldn't have a sense of why it made me feel bad or why it felt wrong. Whereas because I'm personally very interested in things like fitness and nutrition, I can see immediately when something is problematic, versus, like, it always shocks me when I, for example, just talk to my mates who are not into this in any shape or form in the same way that I am. And it's like a literal, like, constant, it it constantly reminds me with some of the stuff that they come out with how problematic and how entrenched all of this stuff is. All I would just say is that the only thing that, like, really helps with this stuff is by being curious and by asking for the information behind the thing that you are being told. To give you an example, this is going to be of no interest to anyone who is younger than 30 or in their mid thirties, but there is this like very pervasive um, fear narrative around the fact that, for example, for women, when you hit the menopause, that you're basically just going to have this enormous belly. Okay, if you listened to a lot of like menopause accounts and stuff, you would think that this is just some like demon that takes over your body and automatically like just makes you not look like yourself. Now, the thing is that there's actual science behind that. Yes, that could happen to you, because what happens when you have a hormone shift is that it redistributes where your fat sits on your body. It doesn't make you gain more fat. The reason why I'm giving you that you know example is to say that there is a lot of stuff that we are being told is science and is fact and is truth, that when you actually examine it, it's it's absolute nonsense. Like, you know, for example, the, the conflation that like, if you have six pack abs, that must mean you're really healthy and you're strong. It doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. Like the only thing that like having like visible abs will tell you is that you have a low body fat percentage. And that is not necessarily an indicator of, of your health. So there's stuff like that that I find really interesting because I'm interested in it. What does concern me is when certain things, especially because there's a lot of like science podcasts out there, there's a lot of science accounts and they're distilling what is actually quite complicated stuff to explain into these sound bites. And then people just beat themselves up because, you know, they're not taking like ice cold showers in the morning or getting up at like 5am. And it's just like, who the hell wants to do that? Like, just have a consistent routine that isn't hellish, that you can maintain every day. And literally that's it. (laughs) That is hilarious. I am never doing the ice cube bath, ice cold shower. And anyone who suggests it to me, I'm just like, oh, now I know that we're not going to be friends.
0: Oh, it makes me laugh because every time I see one of those posts up, I'm just like, but why?
1: Yeah. Well, why? I oh, I didn't realize the, um, the solution to all of my anxiety was like having an ice cube bath. Thank you, Internet. So, yeah, I know. I could just about handle a cold shower, to be fair. <laughs> I, I can't even do that. I mean, I can't even handle that.
0: You know, one of the things you talked about was being a sole trader, and being self-employed, which I think is really tough to do. And thank you for taking some time out to do this podcast. But you do have to balance your life quite a lot. and Your diary is jam packed. I mean, like this is a big deal that I've got you on this. How do you find the time for
1: balance? How do you find time for you during this period? I mean, you you say that it's jam-packed, but the reason why it's jam-packed is because I do work that balance in, especially how I organize my life now. It's not like my calendar is completely packed with back-to-back meetings or something. And I I know from having worked in corporations, I can never, ever, ever go back to the back-to-back meeting lifestyle. Um, I did a consultancy last year where I had to do that for three months. And I felt like it was so bad for productivity and creativity. I just thought, I just don't understand how people work in this way because there's just no, there's no brain space to think. So for me personally, the thing I am probably bad at is by going, okay, that's definitely my day off. I'm more, I I kind of like sandwiched the days off depending on what's happening in the rest of my calendar. But I do make sure that that space and time is, is there. I did feel a, a bit of guilt about this, but I just know that I've I've learned this the hard way where, um, you know, next week I've got I was invited to a book launch for a friend of mine. And I can't do it because I literally am going to be out like two nights before that. I've got my niece coming to stay with me. I've got um you know other things going on in that week and so that's just not something that I can commit to so I had to say I'm re- I, like I was honest with her because she's a friend but if we weren't friends I would just say I'm really sorry I'm not free that day which will give someone the impression that I've got some appointment it's not it's like I would I would view me being at home taking some time especially as like an introvert taking some time because I know that if I've got other appointments or other work things in the week I have to get my brain right in order to be able To do all of that stuff. So I don't get me wrong, I do work really hard. I do work on more than one thing at the same time, especially now. Like I'm doing edits for my book. So it's always an intense time. But that's what I'm working in extra time around because I know it's an intense time. And I know that if I don't work in time just to sit still and not have to make plans, it means that when, for example, that project or that deadline is over, I will literally like melt and not be able to do anything. So I'm really impressed that you set boundaries with yourself, actually, because I
0: wasn't very good at doing that. And I really suffered off the back of it. And I came across a little bit grumpy and, you know, probably didn't show up well sometimes. Now I'm in this period of trying to focus on myself, exercise. It, it, it's so important for you. I just feel like it's just changed me as a human being. But it is very hard to do that. It's very hard to say no to things,
1: I think. it. It is. But shall I tell you one thing I started doing a few years ago, which I think, to be honest, has just saved me, was that I don't really book in social engagements unless they are a birthday or a special occasion, or let's say a friend who has like a kid, right, and needs to arrange like babysitting. I don't book anything in more than two weeks in advance. So when someone says to me, oh, hey, what are your plans for September? I'm like, no, we're not doing that. Like, you know, I, I can't because very, very often beforehand, that that idea of having my calendar booked out used to actually make me want to throw up. And also, I think because you just don't know in four weeks are you going to be sick? Are you going to be really tired? Like, you just don't know any of those things. So I just refuse to do that. And I have to be honest, it has completely changed my life
0: really? for the best.
1: Some people don't like it, some people really don't like it but I'm just like, I'm sorry. Like if you are the type of person who needs to have stuff booked two months in advance, then I am the person that needs to have stuff booked no more than two weeks in advance. So at some point, you know, either we can meet in the middle around it, but I can't do the two months in advance thing.
0: Yeah, that feels so far away. You just don't know what's going to be happening. That that does yeah. feel quite strange. Back to the point around your journey has been, you know, a process and it has made you the woman that you are today. If you had to drop three top tips to somebody that wants to get into the field of work that you do or, you know, following your footsteps, what would the three tips you'd like to offer?
1: I would say regardless of what industry you want to get into, but okay, particularly, let's say something like journalism, I would say that just be the person that works hard, like especially if you are an entry level, work hard. I would say don't allow people to take advantage of you, but just be seen as a hard worker and someone who is willing to graft and to use their initiative and to take jobs on even when it may not necessarily be fall under your remit i would say the second thing is to not be afraid to work uh, to take like lateral steps so even if something doesn't seem like a direct promotion if it is a sideways move that will you know increase your skill set then i would definitely do that And I would say the third thing is take the note, take the feedback when the feedback's being offered to you, just take it. You don't have to necessarily voice an opinion about it in that moment, in that point in time. I would just take the feedback, have a think about it. And if you have any other questions, make those questions about the work, not necessarily about your feelings within it, unless, of course, you are in a serious situation where that might require it.
0: Yeah, I really love the fact that you said that because it's quite easy to get emotional about feedback because everything feels so personal, but make it about the work that's so
1: important. But also because I think that having been like a middle manager and a senior manager, the people that they will spend their time mentoring shaping will be the people who take the no it, you you won't want to spend your time doing that with people who constantly push back about it so that that is my biggest piece of advice that I would give
0: and also being a hard grafter and and putting the work in which doesn't you know I've been in situations where I've been managing somebody and they said oh I but I shouldn't be doing this. And I was like, oh my God, at your age. And when I was working in this company, I was like doing all of that and more. I guess this goes back to the whole thing I was saying earlier on around like the idealised job and where you need to be at a specific age and people feel like they're giving themselves a hard time because they haven't got there yet. But actually, this is the work you got to put in. So I love that as a top tip because you're such an advocate for diversity and inclusion uh, you've spoken quite a lot about it you've also spoken about it in terms of journalism it's quite not there yet Or actually, interested in writing if there was an underrepresented community well, maybe a few uh, that you would wish were more represented in your field of work you know who would who would they be
1: I don't think I can pick one because I feel like, for example, when you talk about something like the working class having more representation and everyone's brain immediately goes to the white working class and it's like, well, there can be people of colour who are working class as well. So I don't think that, you know, if you are a human being, you don't belong to any one community. You could be a parent, you could be a person of colour, you could be, you know, so I would just say that the most obvious ones are definitely, you know, racial diversity, neurodiversity, disability, as well as we're obviously talking about gender diversity. But I think that generally, it does need to be, you know, looking at like senior management teams and looking especially at, you know, the leadership teams that you see. Uh, I don't think we're seeing anywhere near the diversity for example racial diversity that we should be seeing or gender diversity necessarily and that's something that i think you know we're in 2023 i I still am concerned for example about like the um the the sort of headway that's being made in terms of like racial diversity in certain quarters and some of the like pullback uh from certain brands and certain companies who don't seem to think it's an issue anymore
0: yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's diversity of thought that we need to really make all of these sectors flourish, all of these businesses grow. And I think a little bit more of that could be really helpful. I know I've gone back to social media again here, but I want to talk a little bit more about toxic behaviours. And I've actually seen a video of you talking about toxic behaviours within friends and letting those go. I've experienced some toxic behaviours, friends, family, even in a workplace environment as well. How do you feel about toxic behaviours and remove those from your life in terms of like if somebody's behaved in a way that you have not found has been a positive impact in your life? How do you sort of deal with that, whether it's a workplace environment, a friend or a family member?
1: I mean, in terms of toxic workplaces, of which I have worked in many, I don't think I realised that there was a choice for me. And I completely get it, especially when you're starting out. And like, there's a very practical need to you needing money to like live and eat, you know, uh, of course it can feel like, and especially companies do this, however, where they make you feel like you should be grateful to get any job because, you know, especially if you work in an industry that's very competitive and journalism is one of the worst for this, you know, especially at that beginning stage, when you're competing with a lot of people, um, you may be more disposable, let's say, than perhaps other industries, but I don't think you should ever have to feel like you're grateful for working somewhere. If you remove the emotion out of it, there is a work contract that binds <laughs> you both together for which you get paid, not for like sitting around and eating sweets. You're actually like providing like whether that's, you know, manual or like mental labor. So you you are giving something to them, right, in exchange for this money that you're receiving. And I think definitely like how I felt about work was that, you know, whenever I would have like a really horrible boss or just like a workplace culture that would make you work like so many hours more than, you know, you were actually contracted to work. And I felt like I had to put up with it because if I didn't, then no one else would employ me. I would never be able to find another job. And I completely understand how you why you feel like that at that age. But it just simply isn't true. You know, every single time I've either been made redundant or I have like proactively quit my job. I have, even though sometimes it's taken a bit of time, I have always managed to find myself another job because your skill set is what you take with you. That's not something the, co- the company doesn't have copyright over that. Right. So I would say like when you are dealing with a toxic situation, insofar as you can and you know you're in a safe environment to do so and you know you're not jeopardizing like for example your ability to pay rent or whatever it is, you have a choice. And I would just get the hell out of there if you are working for someone who is making your life a living hell. Like, so, I mean, obviously, apart from doing the obvious things of reporting them to HR and all of that stuff, but just get out of there. Like, you don't need to be there. Like, unless you are literally like working for your parents' company, and even then shouldn't be putting up with it. Very important for you to remember that you have a choice in this. It's exactly the same thing, toxic friendships or or any kind of toxic relationship that you might have. Where, again, because of the emotional ties to it, especially if you've known someone for a very long time, you feel like you can't possibly do it if you're absolutely extricated in it. But if any any person or any situation is making you consistently feel horrible about yourself, and we all know, like, I can I can almost feel what that feeling feels like as I'm talking about it. No one and nothing should make you feel like that about yourself. And so even though I think it's very easy for me to say this, I would just extricate that person, I would extricate yourself from that situation as gently and as quickly as you possibly can and just don't feel that you have to put up with it. Because let me tell you, in a toxic situation like that, it's very, very rare that it actually gets better unless that person or that element or that entire workplace culture changes.
0: Yeah, I feel like I need to get up and give you a standing ovation and like an applause, <laughs> but I'm going to ruin this podcast if I actually bother to do that. But I just want to say thank you for saying that, because I think a lot of people, especially when they go through redundancies, especially when they go through toxic behaviours, they blame themselves and they lose their confidence. So I really appreciate what you're saying, which is remember who you are, your craft, your expertise. No one has copyright on that. That's beautifully said. Thank you for that. Now, if I had to ask you to surmise your success, I know this is really hard to do given the conversation we just had about how long it takes to even get to a level of success. But if you had to surmise your success in three words, what would they be?
1: Oh, I don't even know how to do that. Like just three words? Three words, yeah. Um, Tough one. Unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> grateful I know this is technically like two words but earned it yeah earned it I love that oh I
0: really like that but I'm just gonna say thank you so much for your time I just always love talking to you just because you're just so honest and and open about things so I just wish I could see you more often but now I know your schedule and how you do things so expect a call for a drink very soon but thanks for taking this time out thanks so much for having me Hello, thank you for listening to Behind the Face of Success. I hope you've enjoyed it just as much as I have. If you've liked what you've heard, then please do share this podcast and any others you like in the series to your friends and family.